But I want to start with an article from this morning in the LA Times. So LA LA Times article from this morning uh, titled, The Hawaii Law Letting Police Have Sex with Prostitutes May Be Changed. And what it is is... uh, is that there's a law on the books that police in Hawaii can have sex with prostitutes. And it says police in Hawaii have said that they need to have the flexibility to have sex with prostitutes and that they have to fight to save the state law that has allowed them to do so. The rest of the articles continues to be pretty funny. And I kept checking the source because I thought maybe this was one of those funny made-up news um, sites. You know what I'm talking about? Like where you just... Wouldn't it be funny if Justin Bieber got arrested for this and then this is what happened? You just kind of make up a new story and I'm like, this, this has got to be one of those, right? No, it's the LA Times. Um, and, uh, and I checked five times, so, so it really is. So it's a fascinating thing because if you read the rest of the article, you're really going, what in the world is going on here? And, and how do we get so lost in things that, that you could actually have police officers having sex with, with girls or runaways or, or whatnot because there's some kind of higher end going on. And who polices the police that they don't abuse this power? And, and you begin to go, are we even having this conversation? It's ridiculous. Um, the idea that we're going to fight bad with badness is, is kind of nonsensical. But really that sentence or that phrase that, that the police in Hawaii, the good guys, are fighting to be able to continue to have the flexibility to to have sex with prostitutes um, really struck me because the good guys are fighting for the grace to continue to be able to engage in fighting badness um, with badness. So, So because they're good, there should be the grace that they have the discretion to to do what what they think is needed in this case. Jude, I think is, is looking at a Christian culture in his day that feels like this to him. So he's wanting to write the good guys and he's, he's wanting to talk to them about you know, what, it, what it's like, the stress of being a good guy or a police officer, what it's like to, to do this and how to encourage each other. And, and then when he gets down to putting his pen to paper, he goes, you know, there's, there's some parts of, of the community, there's some parts of the good guys that, that really isn't good guys. It's, it's taking the good guy thing to have the grace to be the bad guy. And he goes, that, that can't be. And so Jude, if you, if you turn there with me in the New Testament, it's after the, the three letters, short letters from John, right before Revelation. Jude addresses his, his audience And then in verse 3, he says this, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation that we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that that was once and for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men, whose condemnation was written about long ago, have secretly slipped in among you, and they are godless men, who changed the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. And so as we talked about in the first couple weeks where we were in Jude is that this is what's called the antimonian heresy that's basically saying that because grace has come, all law has gone out. Not just the ceremonial law or, 
or the, the laws for Jews to kind of be ritually or ceremonial, uh, ceremonially uh, pure before God, but that, that all law, including the moral law, is, is gone. doesn't really matter because there's this thing called grace. So you can just kind of go headlong into whatever you think you want to do or, or should do or are free to do because um, there's grace. And grace becomes license. And so we talked about this and talked about how in this situation, what gets lost is the sovereignty of God. What gets lost is the lordship of Jesus Christ. That this center of gravity that sits there, that we are located against, kind of like the sun in our solar system, that, that the holiness of God, the lordship of Christ, that that being there affects us and shapes us and steers us in such a way that we're presented with a clear choice of either bending into that or, or choosing to push away from that and go in our own way. And what Jude is saying is you can't claim to be going this way and say that you're doing it because of grace or that grace is, is the thing that's making this permissible, that grace has this kind of glue-like effect. It's, it reaches out and it redeems you and it washes you and allows you to feel loved and allows you to see God more clearly and to not live in shame. And you're overwhelmed by the magnitude of God, the bigness of God, the majesty, and, and you're naturally confronted with this reality that I was meant to bend in to this, to, to go this way to be found here, to be affected by the holiness of God. And so grace that does this is not the thing that allows you to do this. And so you're misappropriating theology, you're twisting the good news into just giving yourself permission um, to not follow God, but to follow self. And so as we get to the end of Jude, he kind of concludes this with in what's in my Bible titled, A Call to Persevere. And so this is now kind of coming back to the audience that, that Jude feels like is listening, his people that he's trying to, to help educate and equip. And he's, he's saying, this is, this is the idea. He says, dear friends, verse 17, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you that in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. So we're going to take this piecemeal. The first thing I want to kind of point out there is that there's, this, there's a relationship between um, this word scoffers and following our own ungodly desires. Ungodly desires is simply all the desires that aren't emanating from or driven by or in, in lieu of God. There, there are ungodly desires. I mean, it's just a simple juxtaposition. And what Jude is saying is the scoffers are the ones who are following their own ungodly desires. Because in some sense, the pushing away of God and, and pulling against that gravitational field and, and going this way has with it a certain behavior set, a tool, a mechanism by which you distance yourself. And you distance yourself from God by what? By scoffing. And there's a word picture here. When we use the word scoffing, is it usually to, to make things bigger or to what? To make things smaller, to belittle, 
to put down, right? I had somebody that gave me a whole argument once. They said um, humor in America was forever changed by Steve Martin. I've never like really tracked it, but they said he was the linchpin in turning humor from like slapstick humor to uh, all about like put down humor that, that was, I grew up in that whole era. But, but scoffing, the idea of put down or, or cut down, whatever it is, being critical is, is something about belittling. And so the idea here is that scoffers are making this smaller because the smaller it is, the easier it is to go away or to justify going your own direction. Now, I think that we're smart about this. We never, we never paint a picture of God in his full holiness and then say, I'm going to scoff at you. What we do is we scoff at the things of God and we make the things of God small, and, and by so doing, we're kind of able to eliminate God himself. So I think the most criticized thing, um, I mean, think of the most criticized things in the world today. Dads, unless you go to, to communities where fatherlessness is a huge issue, and then you realize it's not so funny. Um, church, and it's like, I, I, I got fed up with 10 years ago with the whole idea of it, church is just fair game anytime, any place, just to take shots at, right? I, but we, we scoff at church. We scoff at Christianity or our faith or, or something like that. But we, we, we can find ourselves getting caught up with making little of the things of God even though God said these aren't going to be perfect things, but we're supposed to be a part of making them all they, they could be or that they should have been. We're supposed to work at it because they matter, but instead we scoff. And in doing so, it allows us to, to just go our own way. And going our own way might just be saying, not that I'm going to go fully into sin like, like gross and everybody would realize this. So I'm not going to go just kill people, but I'm just going to, I'm going to be in control of my own time. That's not so bad. I mean, it's not murdering anybody. But you know what? The, the, the things I could spend my time on, I mean, I just, I, I, they're distasteful to me these days. You know, and I've, I've, I've gotten so fond of criticizing them that I'm just going to find other ways to use my time. I'm going to find other ways to use my time. And it begins there. And we, we begin to go our own way rather than saying, how do I get a New Testament vision of the world? How do I immerse myself in scripture? How do I find out what God's heartbeat is for this world, for my life, what, what he's calling me to? How do I begin to filter all of life through kind of this one direction, overarching thing that I might have a job and a paycheck and relationships and trials, but through all of that, there's something that unifies my life that, that I'm somehow supposed to bear witness to the reality of God, to the glory of, of his salvation plan in Christ, and that somehow leaning into that strength, I can be different. That instead of going my own way, I can go this way submissively and that there's a tenor to that and a goodness to that that other people that are having a difficult time living on their own in their own power begin to look over here and say, maybe I've drank the Kool-Aid and bought the lie and, and maybe I've got this wrong because there's something attractive about this person that seems to lean so hard into following God in all these areas of life. Like that's the juxtaposition. And so the scoffers are going to come. 
in the last days. And they're going to use that to follow their own ungodly desires. And these are the men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. So two things in that sentence. These people are going to divide you. Why? Because they're not axe murderers in prison. They're actually right there on the edge of your community. They look like you. They talk like you. They're fun to go grab a beer with. But at the end of the day, their commitment is to self. When you talk about your marriage issues, their commitment is not what would God have in this situation? Their commitment is, what's the funniest joke that I can cut? Or I'm going to give that person the advice that, that really is going to sanction what I want to do in my own marriage, and then we can kind of do that together because I'll feel good about it. But, but these people are there in conversation or criticizing church with you or whatever it might be, and they're slowly dividing you, but they don't have the spirit. They don't have the spirit. So a couple things about this idea of living uh, with the spirit or having the spirit. Romans 14, if you'll turn there. Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14, Paul's trying to just work out an issue of division that has to do with you know, what kind of foods do we eat, right? Are we, are we eating paleo or gluten-free or I don't know? And, and how does that affect the church, church divisions um, over which diet to eat, right? Uh, but so he comes into this and he says in verse 15, if your brother is distressed, so this is chapter 14 of Romans in verse 15. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Because you might want to eat that way. But if you don't realize that it's causing division, um, or if you realize it and ignore it, or make fun of them, so I'm not going to change what I'm doing because of you. You're stupid. Uh, if, you, if you do that, you're not acting in love anymore. God's not present in that decision or that action anymore. It says, do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. There's something interesting here. Um, we, we do everything. The phrase, the Latin phrase would be quorum deo. We do everything we do before the face of God. When we have a big God, when we have a holy God, when we realize, like the scriptures say, God is in his holy temple, let all the earth be silent before him, that, that we do everything before the face of God. I think a, a little lesser known thing is what comes out in this, is that we also do everything before the face of the nations. Everything we do is before, is before mankind. People see 
or witness or are aware of everything we do. And that matters because by our actions, we're either helping affirm them towards their relationship with God or giving them sanction to walk away from that relationship with God. So at all times, we're before the face of God and before the face of the nations. And this is what Paul's talking about. He's like, listen, as you make these decisions, don't you realize the bigger picture of what's going on and that the kingdom of God is not about you having the freedom to eat or drink. It's, it's about somehow that this righteousness and this peace and this joy in the Holy Spirit, this unity, because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God because God sees and approved by men because men watch. Do you see that? And then it says this, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. So there's, if you want to visualize it, and if Kip was here, I'd be drawing it, but if you want to visualize it, that when the Holy Spirit is at work and, and we're we're then aware of what is going on and we have this power and this motivation and our, our eyes are opened, we bend this way into where God would have us go or what God created us to be like. We bend that way. And when we follow our mere natural instincts or our ungodly desires and we kind of ignore all this, are not standing in the Holy Spirit, uh, availing ourselves of that power or having that relationship, we bend this way. So we either bend in towards God, the power of the Holy Spirit, or we bend away. And, and there are two distinct things that happen. When we bend in, it is all about unity and mutual edification. It somehow brings us together. When we bend away, it's all about self and individualism. And that's one of the reasons why um, we have to, well, let's just, here, I'll just read these real quick. Um, 1 Corinthians talks a lot about the church. So 1 Corinthians 3, 1, it says this, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ, because he was talking about the divisions in their church. So he's looking at it and saying, how can, I, how can I say that you get this spiritual life, what it means to keep in step with the Spirit, uh, biblical language right there, or the fellowship with the Spirit, biblical language. How can I say you get that when I look at all the divisions? You're mere infants. And then he goes on to talk about spiritual gifts, and he's saying, man, you guys are all thinking about yourself like I want to grab something like powerful from the Holy Spirit or I want to claim to be something in the Holy Spirit and so everybody's it's like a it's like a pinata explodes and everybody's diving in saying I want I want something for myself out of this whole thing and they're getting really excited and Paul's saying you don't even get it what's the purpose of the spiritual gifts the purpose of the spiritual gifts is to give you a tool set or power to accomplish what the Spirit wants to have done in this world, which is unity. You don't even realize like what the spiritual gifts are aimed at, right? And so he goes on and he says this, um, 1 Corinthians 14, 12, and he says, so it is with you, since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, that's not necessarily bad, try to excel in those that build up the church. Try to excel in those that build up the church. So as you're getting your maturity, as you're gaining some kind of power or gifting by the Holy Spirit, recognize the purpose of that gifting, 
recognize that you can accomplish something through that gifting and eagerly desire gifts that are going to lead to that. And if you do that, it's going to be a marvelous thing. So here's the breakdown of, of why my generation is able to be so unaffiliated with church. Because we see it as other. We see it as other. Church is here. I am distinct from church. I can critique it. I can evaluate it. I can choose to go or not go. But at the end of the day, it's an institution that is different than me. I'm looking out for my own interests. And therefore, I can evaluate church much like I would Walmart or Target or Costco or any other kind of institution. Does that make sense? We've divorced ourselves from realizing that our growth and blessing and greatest opportunity and joy is bound up with the spiritual community that is leaning into us, that we're pouring out to, that the Holy Spirit wants to bless us because we're using our gifts to turn around and, and empower and equip and bless and affirm and nurture others. And that somehow as we do this together, it says in Ephesians, as, as we do this, we build each other up in love as each part does its work. I can't seek my good apart from the church. Do you see that? To do that would be to cut myself off from where the Holy Spirit is working and pouring the energy to grow and build and unify. And so when I treat it as, what am I getting? And is this helping me get? And you know what? I'm not getting anything anymore. So, I, you know, I just, there's other options on Sunday morning. Or I might just, I might just, Try some other things because at the end of the day, I'm, I'm treating it like all of life where I'm at the center and I'm, I'm just trying to find the things that help, that help facilitate my movement through life, reaching and accomplishing the goals I set for myself or the things I desire. Am I an axe murderer? No. Am I following ungodly desires? Maybe. Because if we're really being bent this way, living in the spirit, being empowered that way, unity, mutual edification, love, living before the face of God and before the face of the nations, that's the reality. That's the joy. That's what fuels us. That's what makes us look happy, not because we're getting pleasure, but, but because there's a state of being where things are in harmony. And we enjoy that. And that's ultimately the thing that everybody wants, by the way, is that deep-seated joy that circumstances or suffering cannot touch. All right, let's keep going here. So uh, Jude, back to Jude. It says, but you, verse 20, but you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Build yourselves up in the most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. So build yourself up. If you really want to become something, if you want to grow, if you want self to, to become fuller, more developed, more mature, it's not by thinking of self. It's through faith. 
that faith is the tool, faith is the engine, faith is the driver for nourishing and growing who you are. It's the thing that connects us to Jesus. And it says, you know, Jesus says in John 15, I am the vine, you're the branches. And as we keep in step that way by faith, then we're nurtured and we grow. So if we really want what's best for our souls, I don't think it's wrong to desire what's best for our souls. Every day when, I, when I'm hungry and I think, you know, I should eat, like I don't think, wow, that was really selfish of me. There, there's a kind of self-interest that is different than selfish. Self, selfish is when I choose self over and above every other consideration even if it takes away or harms from you. Self-interest is simply saying, all things being equal, I want what's best for, say, my body or my soul. And there's nothing wrong with that. God acts out of self-interest. Does he not? I am the Lord your God. I am holy, and I will not um, allow you to give my glory to anyone else, he says in Isaiah. Refuse to let you give my glory to someone else. Why? Because I'm acting in self-interest because for you to profane my name is bad for everybody. So I protect my glory because it's the center of gravity. That's God acting in self-interest. When you get on an airplane, they say, if something happens, um, you put your mask on first. Why? If you're traveling with young children because they don't really matter as much. They're not fully developed yet. Um, (laughs) Their earning potentials not really that great. Uh, no, it's it's. Hey, listen. All things being equal, acting in your self-interest, getting that mask on, it is going to allow you to bring the greatest amount of good. God guarding His own glory is for the good of all of us. If God somehow allows Himself to become less, I don't know how that helps me out. I don't think it helps any of us out. So self-interest is different than selfishness. And the way we act in self-interest when it comes to our soul is to walk by faith. It's to build ourselves up in our most holy faith and then to pray in the Holy Spirit. We're gonna talk in a couple weeks about prayer and what does that mean. We're just gonna take a whole week about what does this conversational thing with God really look like? Um, How do we really get into that? How do we listen for the voice of God? Um, So we'll leave some of that. It goes on, keep, yourself, uh, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. I want to skip down to the doxology. And this is how Jude closes the book. It says, to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Christ Jesus, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. So he who is able to present you without fault, meaning he's gonna somehow, because of his grace, carry you forward so that you're faultless and blameless. And that that's the greatest place of joy. The Bible talks unabashedly about our joy. Do you know that? Like it's okay to get excited about joy. Why? Because joy and and closeness with God are coupled together. 
I can no more have God and not joy than I could have joy without God. Those, those two things are interconnected. And so to, to get excited about God is to get excited about what it means to have joy and to have the best in life. And so the one who can present me because of grace before God without fault and with great joy or to the only God our Savior be the glory so the holiness, the bigness, the majesty, I'm going to ascribe to him all the glory. As it says in Romans, all things are from, through, and to God. All things are from, through, and to. What do I get credit for? Very little. Very little. I've been redeemed into this faith. I stand now in the spirit. God gives me power and blesses me and gives me the opportunity to fight against kind of broken urges so that I can bend this way and begin to find the unity that I was created for, the love that I was created for, the relationship that I was created for, the joy that I so hunger and crave. And so I'm, I'm standing here and God gets all the credit. He gets all the credit. All things are from, through, and to, to God be the glory. Now, let's go just a step deeper in that. I mean, that means every single aspect of your life should be lived ultimately to one end, to the glory of God. Why do you have your job? It's not to make money for your, your family. It's not to create a breakthrough in cancer treatment. You have your job to glorify God to the best of your ability in that work that you do. How you do it, how you interact with people while you're doing it, ultimately the, the good that you can bring to this world, the flourishing that you can bring to this world, you have your job for the glory of God. Ultimately, why do you have the wife or the husband that you have? Malachi talks about this. That, that you could bring about a picture of what church or family should look like, where there's, there's love and unity. Well, why, do you, why do you go do missions? Why do you do justice? Why do you help serve? Because ultimately that's where God is going to be most glorified. And that if we turn a blind eye to that for too long, we can't really say that we're being led by the Spirit into the things of God because we're ignoring where God would lead us to bring goodness to the world, unity, love, and health to his glory. Ultimately, everything's to, to God's glory. And so what we find is that we truncate things in, in the modern world. We don't think about means and ends uh, correctly we take everything as its own end. What do I want to eat? I want to eat in and out. Why? Because I want in and out. It's not, it's not, no, 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 why do I want to eat? Well, I want to eat because I'm hungry. Well, why am I hungry? Because my body needs food. Why does my body need food? Because it burns up calories and biochemically it needs to stay balanced for everything to be healthy and, and functioning right. So God gave me the ability to have that appetite to, to, to set me off for that because I'm a contingent being, meaning that if I don't do this, I will wither and die because I live in a broken world. That's why I eat. Right? Not because I want in and out. In and out is a means, maybe, um, to an end. Why do you go to the grocery store? You don't go to the grocery store because the grocery store is an end. You go to the grocery store because you need groceries. And why do you need groceries? It's the same chain all over again. Does that make sense? And when we begin to, to look at it, we have means and ends. 
And what Aristotle and then Jonathan Edwards and, and others have argued, theolo- uh, Aristotle wasn't arguing it theologically, he was just being philosophical, but what Aquinas and, and, and Jonathan Edwards and everybody, I think, brought to theology was saying, listen, what the Bible says unequivocally is that there are means and there are ends, but at the end of the day, there, there's an ultimate end. That everything we do ultimately is about the glory of God. Everything we do ultimately is about the glory of God. And so the things we do, we do before the, the face of God. And we do before the face of the nations, bearing witness to whether grace is making us more alive to who we're supposed to be or giving us license to somehow fall away from where we're supposed to be. Whether good guys are seeking permission to to have sex with prostitutes, license, or whether we're trying to find what is is noble and what, what really brings about the world that God has created. One side note here. The kingdom of God is about righteousness, peace, and joy. This word righteousness is an English word. Um, it, it's, a, it's a word we use synonymous with justice. Um, it, it doesn't exist in you know, Hebrew or Greek. It's an English word. Um, and so we do something really interesting. We, we talk about being saved by grace through faith. We're, we're given the righteousness of Christ so that we can stand here righteous, faultless. And that's an amazing thing. And so we want to celebrate that. And we get super excited. But we leave it there as some kind of inert, big, we won the lottery, like joy for us that we were handed this righteousness. It's a, it's a misreading of the word righteousness. Righteousness is about a, a right relationship with God, with self, with others in creation. It's about the harmony, the goodness, the way God intended it to be. Christ's righteousness means we get to be put back into alignment the way we were created to be because of his righteousness. That's the same as the word justice. Justice is about a right relationship with God, self, others in creation. They're synonyms, except we've, we've kind of perverted it and, and separated them. And so justice feels like good works and it's that stuff, you know, that's for those, those crazy people with dreadlocks or something, you know, um, Shane Claiborne. Um, and righteousness, well, that's just a really good treat that we all get to have by virtue of, of accepting Jesus as our savior. And, and, and we've done something really weird. It's like this, is, this sounds a lot more like self-righteousness or personal purity disconnected from God, disconnected from others. It's just this wonderful, thank you for that blessing. It's like, no, 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 that blessing creates a reality of right alignment with with God, self, others, and creation. And so we've created in the American church that I can walk around righteous but not care at all about love or justice or unity. And we've, we've really messed that up. And so... It's an interesting thing. I was at a, a church planters gathering in Phoenix just this past week and they were singing a song and they were doing it bilingually and so we were trading verses between Spanish and English. Um, uh, and the word righteousness shows up in English but then you sing the Spanish verse and what, what's the Spanish word? Justicia. Because there is no word righteousness in Spanish or Italian. 
It's justicia. Kind of like the New Testament Greek where there was dikaiosune and various forms of that word. There was one word, one concept. And so it's really interesting. We have to kind of get the depth of all this thing that it's really simple and integrated. When I am in the spirit and, and I'm able to lean into that by faith and I'm able to wait there and hope and, and I've got this deliverer, that grace then bends me this way and produces a kind of alignment that is whole and good for myself and for others. And that if I don't do that, I go this way. Now self-righteousness can be a part of my excuse for going this way and, and, and it's like the Pharisees or the religious leaders of God's day and, and it has everything to do with me as an individual being super religious but not being fully just or I, I would say righteousness in, in the old sense of the word righteous um, reflecting the character and heart of God does that make sense so here it gets even crazier I, I have friends who work in um, in uh, South America that, say, that have actually heard American missionaries say to Christians in, in, um, in South America, you guys can't fully understand the gospel because you don't, have, you don't have the concept of righteousness in your language. Think about that. What have we really done with, with thinking, I mean, thinking so um, Anglo-centric that somehow our word that, that we use to translate Greek, um, that that word, you have to have this word to fully understand the gospel because we've so built it into these formulas and, and kind of um, parsed it out that we would say to someone um, speaking Spanish that has a lot closer roots to the Latin, which I think has a lot closer roots probably to, to kind of... Um, the original languages, and we're saying you can't fully understand the gospel because you don't have the word righteousness. I would argue, I think they, they understand it actually better because they're not distracted by parsing out the same word into two words and somehow allowing ourselves to take grace as if it is only for ourselves, as if there, it, it doesn't have relational strings to it. See, now, God doesn't put strings on things with works. My wife didn't say, I'll covenant to marry you, but here's the, here's the how many loads of laundry you're going to do. Because I, I would have been gone a long time ago. <laughs> but she did put strings on me with a covenant that says, you belong to me. And God gives us grace gives us his righteousness, gives us a, a born-again status into his family. Now, he doesn't put on us like you've got to somehow get a quotient of works to earn this. He's like, I don't want you to earn it, but I do put strings on it. I'm not going to let you wander. That's not permissible here. You belong to me. You're my covenanted person. Do you see the difference? So last word, maybe, maybe a story, last word. Um, we've got to get away from, from patting ourselves on the back with spirituality. We can go out into the mountains all we want and do yoga all we want and, 
and whatever else it is and, and, and be all spiritual and zen and, and likable maybe even and super chill. I don't know. It doesn't have any, there's no, that doesn't mean there's a relationship on the other end of that. We're so fond of talking about spirituality, which is just really a, about shaping myself into a more spiritual being. Okay, spiritual growth, true spiritual growth, Christian spirituality is about saying at the other end of my spirituality is the driver of all this, the bigness of God, the center of gravity, the relationship that I have, and that it's not about me finding Zen, it's about my connection with God. It's about a relationship. So I don't want the watered down thing anymore, okay? I don't, I don't want watered down spirituality and I also don't want um, some kind of legalistic thing. That's the tension. Do I want watered down um, mamby-pamby that's not the real thing or do I want some kind of legalistic thing that's gonna make me walk around trying to prove to God that whatever, it's like God doesn't do that to us. He knows that we make mistakes and forgives us. So I wanna tell you a story about my mistake. So we were down at the Justice Conference. The first night we got there um, was still the Olympics. And so my two oldest daughters were doing couples skating in the hallway. Not really, they were pretending. And my oldest daughter thought it would be good to, to send my, my second oldest, Esther, uh, flying through the air trying to do a triple axel <laughs> or something like that. And she, it didn't work. Uh, so Tamara comes up that night, she's like, I don't know, Esther's hurt, she, you know, she might have broken her arm, I don't know, you know. And I'm like, what? You know, like, I don't have time for this. You know, you don't break your arm in the hallway of a hotel doing, you know, I'm like, whatever. So then, then I come back and it's like ice pack and sling and wrap and I'm like, what? And so they went to Walgreens and, and they got, you know, the ice pack and sling. And so Esther's arm hurt the whole weekend, and then Sunday we were like, yeah, do we take her in or not? And we ask her, she's a trooper, has a high tolerance of pain. She's like, no, I'm doing better. Um, like, okay, um, so we decided not to take her in. We were actually gonna go chase down Linda Van Voorst's parents, because they live down there, they're friends of ours, and we were gonna be like, hey, can our kids use your pool while we take the, you know, we had it all figured out. We didn't do that. So next day we go to Disneyland. So I had been planning Disneyland for a long time. I'm a big fan of memories, making, making memories. I actually might care too much about making memories. It's like a, an idol of mine. I just, I, as a dad, I just, making memories, it's the stuff of life. I'm, I'm a big fan. So we'd planned to take the kids to Disneyland as part of the, this thing. And we um, were going to Disneyland and Esther is coming out and she's, we're on the little bus going to the front of Disneyland. She's got her arm in the, the cheap Wal, Walgreens sling that, that they had bought her that night in downtown LA. And it didn't fit my picture of Disneyland. Like that, that's not my picture of Disneyland. Like her going around like this all day. My picture of Disneyland was all my kids having fun. The pictures are pure and unadulterated, no slings. Um, <laughs> The, the memories are, have, have both, you know, functions in the arms and that's my picture. So I actually looked at that, got frustrated. I said, Esther, take that sling off. She's like, okay, dad. You think I'll be all right? I'm like, yes. I'll be all right. 
So we run around Disneyland uh, the whole day, all that stuff. We come back, her arms hurting her. Tamara takes her in uh, to the orthopedic guy. They do x-rays and her wrist is broken. And I feel really bad. And so I'm like, oh my gosh. So, um, so I do what all dads do when we make a mistake. I buy her off. Um, <laughs> so from ice cream to books to a movie, by the whole, the whole drill off, but, but it was, it was a wrist. It had nothing to do with a sling, right? So I was, you know, I felt a little bit bad. Uh, felt a little bit bad, but, but it was still okay. She made it. The pictures are good. Uh, um, so it gets worse. So, so, so she's been in this cast, um, the last three, four weeks. Um, and she's been icing the cast every night. Her arm still hurts. And I'm thinking, man, she's a kid. Bones are supposed to heal fast. Like, what's going on? You know, whatever. Um, and so she had an appointment Thursday, I think it was, Thursday or Friday. And I thought it was just like a follow-up appointment. But Tamara was worried because it kept hurting. So she's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, you know, I guess that's what the thinking was. I just thought it was a follow-up appointment. So I get a phone call. And um, her elbow was broken, too. So elbow and wrist. Uh, Triple axle. Uh, and all of a sudden, what comes to my mind is the sling. And she knew intuitively that that, that was helping her. And I took that from her. <laughs> Why? Because of self. And because as parents, sometimes it's so easy to jump to our position of authority or power to steer it the way we want to go. Now, is that a huge Mistake? <laughs> it's, it's, uh, yeah. It, I think we're out of time. Um, it's also why we went to the movies Friday night. There was ice cream Friday night. Because I went through the whole round of dad guilt again. Um, so seriously, we went and saw the Muppets movie. Which I would have never done had I not... Um, taken my, my daughter with two broken bones and told her not. That's the only way I would have seen that movie. Um, but, uh, but what you realize is, is latent in that little thing is that kind of abuse of position and power and authority in self and missing the other. Now, this is what happens in our Christian life. Does, do we make mistakes? God gives us grace for that. I, you know, I, I took Esther aside when she got back and I took her into the back room. I said, hey, Esther, do you remember the slang and this and that and the other? And she says, yes, dad. I said, listen, dad made a mistake. And I'm sorry. This is what I was thinking. This is, but I was caught up in my own and I didn't pay enough attention to you. And I'm sorry. And she says, dad, it's okay. You know, she, she forgives. But it's God, God forgives us when we get it wrong. Sometimes when we get it grossly wrong, okay, there is grace for our failings. There's grace for even abuse of power sometimes. But the idea is that we don't, when we see it, when we're aware of it, we don't keep going that way. We realize, man, somehow something got off track and we, we cry out for the grace and the forgiveness and the, the help and the strength to bend things back so that things will be in alignment and relationships will be healthy. And so it isn't about works or earning. It's about grace. 
And that's also how all things are from, through, and to the glory of God. Because ultimately, he gets the credit for empowering our good stuff, and he gets the the credit for carrying us along, forgiving and accepting, and always being long-suffering, that his love endures forever, his love is never failing, so that we can continue to be grown up into the likeness and to the image of his son, that we may all be one as each part does its work in love and we're knit and built together. That's the vision of the church, not just preaching and worship and small groups. It's what we can knit together that benefits all of us. That's Jude. Let's, fin- uh, let's finish with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your scripture. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that we can get excited, that we, even though we can never always get it right, we make the mistakes, that we can eagerly and, and, and joyously continue to run after you. And that when we find you, we find goodness and it only further fans the flame for us to chase after you. Give us a vision of that that is so great and glorious that following our mere earthly instincts or our ungodly desires would, would, would grate against our souls. That the illogic of that, even if it's small stuff, we'd realize it's like, like skin cancer, that it happens to our soul too. Little by little, if we subject ourselves out into the world and, and we, don't, uh, we don't recognize how little pleasures or, or little things we're exposed to can slowly wear us down. Again, give us a picture of your greatness, that all things would be from, through, and to you. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.